Welcome to the Mentality Podcast. We were delighted today to have an absolute legend on uh, on the pod. He is one of the cleverest blokes we know. He's got an IQ of 142. He reads a book a week and he's a bloody good rep. We're always keen to get people who've done amazing things on the Mentality Podcast. And this man wants you a kettle over the Lampard in Chichester, which just makes you think really, like, what have we ever done? I'm obviously messing around, but um, yeah, we were delighted to have Ralph Ineson on the podcast. He's been in so many films, it's unbelievable, really. He's been in Harry Potter, Guardians of the Galaxy, Game of Thrones, Chernobyl, The Witch, Star Wars, you name it. Um, he's a really, really good bloke, but to many of us, he'll always be Finchy from The Office. We had a wide-ranging chat about his career, uh, the challenges he faced, the obstacles of being an actor and mental health and being lonely and abroad a lot. The Office and Leeds United. But yeah, it was a really, really good chat. Hope you enjoy. Ralph, good to have you on, mate. Um, we're just talking a little bit there, mate, but absolutely buzzing to have you on, mate. Buzzing to have you on. And um, we are office, office nerds, office geeks. I know you'll speak to them everywhere and you'll hear from them everywhere but we are quite quite proud one of my proudest achievements mate is creating an office whatsapp group that's stayed going since 2014 mate and um, I think I think you'll know of some other people are in there there's obviously there's Rob Burrow in there there's Ryan Hall um, there is Lippinette George Riley Chris Black um, Chris Peacock. yeah Jim oh Absolutely. Jim Peacock he, he was never a, a member of it but was he, he was he was um he was a member in the the physical realm of of the office right. the office group. Um, he didn't make the cut, did he? Really? He didn't make the cut. You have to you have to uh, you know you have to pass a test when you when you get right, in. Fair uh, but yeah, mate. <laughs> well, he, he sent me he sent me a, a, as a as an office fan. He sent me a tweet once uh, saying that I was his hero, <laughs> and I think it was like just after he'd won like a Man of Steel contest or something like yeah. that. He proper <laughs> stood there like absolute god of of rugby and sport, and uh, calling yeah. some poncy actor his hero. I thought that was hilarious. That's amazing. <laughs> That's amazing, mate. It's uh, I think. Uh, well, I, I'm going to ask you like it, it sort of. It gets to cultish um, standard or like cultish stature, the mm. office. And, and Chris O'Connor's a late addition to that WhatsApp group. And, you know, it's um, it's banded around willy-nilly in our uh, office group quite a lot. Um, but, mate, tell me tell me what your opinion is on, on and why why it makes a cultish um, standard. I think cult's a bit unfair. It's more like a religion. Yeah. I think it's religion. more formalised yeah, formal. you know yeah, what yeah, I mean? It is, yeah. Like, it's, it's there's no question, like, is there? No question. Yeah. It'll be on a census soon. You'll be able to say it as your religion. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Wernham and Hogg. Yeah. Uh, well, I think it was... Um, it's weird because when we were doing it, because I, I, um, I wasn't in the pilot. They made a pilot episode, which was almost the first episode of the first series, but it had a voice behind the camera interviewing people like that so it's virtually the same scripts but that was the only kind of major change and they sent me a VHS because it was that long ago a VHS tape of that pilot and some ideas for this character to come in to the to the series and so I went and I did loads of like improvisations with Ricky and Steve and all that about this character to do it and I remember looking at it thinking it's amazing you know, watching, you know, Martin and uh, Lucy and Mackenzie and Ricky working and just thinking, oh, that's just brilliant. But you, mm. you, you could never have any idea about how successful it would be. In the first, When we were filming the first series, I, I spoke to Asha Tala, who's the producer, who's the guy in the wheelchair. 
uh, that you'll have seen on the documentaries. And I said to him, I said, it's obviously really good. What do you think it's going to do? And he said, I want it to be the new royal family. And at the time, Royal Family was on BBC One getting like nine and a half million viewers every night. It was a real cultural thing, you know, my arse and all of those catchphrases. It was massive. So him saying that just seemed ridiculous because the Royal Family had just, uh, had just kind of encapsulated something that I didn't think the office did. I thought it was just much more niche, but he didn't realise at the time that those relationships, they apply to every every group of people, whether it's school kids, whether it's old people, whether it's offices, sports teams, actors together, whatever, all those relationships are, are kind of universal. So so I think that's why it, it, it became so good and the, um, just amazing writing as well. Yeah, yeah. They've sort of touched on some formula, uh, like you say, that, that brings out in, in every sort of community mm. space. Um, that's that's probably what I can imagine. And um mm. What's what, so? How was the, the character presented to you um, initially as as Chris Finch? Well, it, it was kind of originally more of a a kind of not necessarily London, but very much a kind of spivvy wide boy. Uh, and I'd say I'd watched the the pilot episode, and I realised how good it was. And I thought, there's no way that I'm going to go in and try and do that level of detailed comic acting. And if you watch the show, the takes are really long as well so it's quite a demanding thing to, to shoot it's a bit more like acting in theatre because you uh, the the camera is just there following you around as a, as a handheld thing but the takes themselves are like four or five minutes long so whereas normally it'd be kind of 30 seconds for a take in a film this is, is a lot longer so the uh, it was kind of quite hard hard work to do and I think that's I'm not sure what question I was answering here but there's a point I wanted to make that it's uh, that a lot of it actually in the office uh, that people don't realise is is that it's not improvised at all it's all absolutely scripted mm. and the way it looks so improvised and off cuff is because it's rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed for hours and hours and hours before they even turn the camera on because mm. the, camera, the camera himself is a character the guy who's operating the handheld camera, his movements and the timings of his movements are as important as what the actors do because the, the, a lot of the gags are done by the reveal or the pull of focus. So the, the time you spend rehearsing those before you actually film it goes into, I think, why it's quite as good as it is. Because I've worked on lots of comedies before and they go, oh, yeah, we want to be of that kind of style. Mm. And you kind of go, what, why are we shooting now? We haven't rehearsed it. We haven't got it up to the standard mm. it needs to be before you shoot it. Who'd be behind the, the camera? Would that be Stephen Merchant or would it be someone else? The the cameraman was a guy called Andy. Uh, I can't remember his surname, which is embarrassing and a bit disrespectful because he's fucking brilliant. Uh, <laughs> but it was 20 years ago, to be, to be fair to me. Yeah, um, but yeah, so he, he he's operating the camera and uh, Stephen and Ash and Anil Gupta, who is the executive producer, will be watching on monitors, like just offset. And then when we'd cut, usually Ricky would go and watch the playback with uh, with the producers and Stephen, the director, and then come back and, and work again. So it's quite an odd way to work because, you yeah. you know, that, that's not usually the way. You know, it's, it's, the person you're acting with is not usually the director as well, So it was, yeah. uh, and the writer. So yeah. the I've, Obviously, I've watched it many times, mate, and I've uh, mm. I've sort of come up with 
I don't know, like wishful thinking or dream. And I've seen stuff like The Office, seen in between and stuff, and you know, stuff that James Franco does over um, in the States. I'm like, mm. that would be the fucking best job ever to be on a set with your mates, just like, yeah. just like creating something like that and having a laugh, like having a yeah. laugh, you know, like just just con- continuously doing that. And I can imagine it's a little bit more difficult and put together and stuff. And um, well, it, yeah, it's it's it has its moments of of absolute hilarity. You can imagine mm-hmm. like the first hour of the day when Ricky Gervais comes in and you know, everybody's getting ready and he's just <laughs> nah, 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 and he's cracking the jokes. Yeah. And it's like a lot of, a, a continuous stand up routine, which is brilliant. But also, then when you start filming there's different disciplines in play. And so, although Ricky kind of creates this incredible atmosphere on set where it's funny and everybody's always on the edge of laughter and it's always a little bit edgy, you're always thinking, I shouldn't really be laughing at that. Because in in the in the flesh, his, <laughs> his stuff is even more close to the knuckle than it is the, his actual stuff. So he's constantly trying to make you laugh at things you shouldn't laugh at. Um, it's kind of his stick. So when you're filming, it's all right for him because he's written the fucking scene. Mm. He's written the whole thing. So it's all right for him to be pissing about. And we are stood there thinking, I've got this really long speech and I've got to go there and then I've got that little bit with him and that. And you're trying to get your head together just before they say action. And he pinches your ass <laughs> straight up. And he does that. And you're just like, for fuck's sake, man. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to work. You may be able to work like that, but I can't. So, uh, so yeah, I found it quite tough at times. Not just because of that, because of, you know, to, to work like that, uh, You've either got to work hard or you've got to be Ricky Gervais. You know what I mean? It, that, and also, I'm not saying that he, he, he. I'm not saying that he doesn't work hard. He, he does, but he, he he had a has a natural rhythm to himself, which which is different to most actors I've worked with. Yeah, and I, I, I'm conscious that Chris will be wanting to ask a lot of questions, but I, in my eyes, I think like obviously Ricky Gervais came in for the office. I'm like, I'm thinking as I've as I've been an outside viewer, I'm like. I reckon he was very similar to David Brenner at that point. And then I've seen his journey over the past and it's like, he's, he's obviously getting older, he's, he's, he's going up, he's doing things and he's like distancing himself more and more in the Dextras and then he's going and done Derek and Afterlife. It's like he's splitting away from that David Brent persona, but it's always a little mm. bit with him. Do you know what I mean? I think he's a little bit yeah. in, in there at, the, at, the, at that time with filming office. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're probably right. Yeah. yeah. I don't think any, you know, you can never break fully away as any actor. You can never break fully away from characters you played before because you've mm. still got the same face. <laughs> you've still got the same <laughs> yeah, voice. Yeah. If you change yeah. your voice, you grow a beard. It's all, you know, there's always going to be some recognition. Yeah. So whenever you watch Ricky, you're always going to see something of David Brandt. And, you know, same <laughs> yeah. goes for me as well. I get, you know, the amount of times if I put on social media, whenever I play a character in anything else, there will, al- there will always be a reference back to it. So you know, be <laughs> it's true. Like mate, mates will come and go. I saw Finchie in Chernobyl the other day and stuff. Yeah, like exactly. That, that like was what I was going to say. You go, do you not get this whole concept that he is a fictional character too? But yeah, it's it's part part compliment, part wind up. You know what I mean? To, to yeah. that. You kind of go, yeah, it's great. I've got a character that everybody recognises and everybody loves. But part of it's like, can you not just fucking forget about it? So I can play some other characters. <laughs> it's been but, fucking twenty years, man. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But the, the, the weird thing about it as well is that uh, about six years ago, I did a, a film in America, like an independent horror film, uh, kind of out of nowhere, and I was cast as like the adult lead in it from nowhere. Um, 
and it wasn't the kind of parts I'd been playing. And it did really well over there. It won at the Sundance Film Festival and, and made, made a bit of money and all this. Uh, so in America, I've kind of got a different career than I have over here. Because over here, I'll always be kind of Finchian and I'll definitely be kind of Leeds, I'll be Yorkshire and mm. I'm probably working class characters as well. Whereas over there, I go to America and they just see a tall bloke with an imposing nose and a deep voice. So they have me as lords and kind of like head of, head of the FBI and shit like that. So it's, it's quite interesting to, to have a, a mini second career without Finchie being involved in it. Yeah. <laughs> that's the, the witch you're referring to, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. The witch. Yeah, I, I saw that film recently. That is... Because I'm a, I'm a writer as well. I write for mm. theatre and radio. And like, I was going to mention The Office is just... Uh, when it comes to like perfection in comedy writing and... Mm. I could tell you can't just improv that, right? It has to be, it's so well-crafted. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's really refreshing to hear you say that it's actually a great script, really well rehearsed with a great cast. Mm-hmm. Like that's the recipe. Yeah, absolutely. Casting as well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Casting yeah. I think is, is so important in, in that case. Oh yeah. But, uh, but the writing. And look, look what the cast have gone on to do, like yeah, yourself yeah. included. Yeah. No, um, it's, been a, it's been a good but one. But yeah, the, the witch as well is, is another one. Like, the use of language in that and the attention to detail when I watched that, it was uh, it kind of caught me off guard. I, I was kind of expecting, not like a bog-standard horror, but um, it really is like this really kind of disturbing uh, feel. And look, I, had, I didn't know you were in it when I, we just picked it. And then um, my first thought was, was it, it's, it's, it's Finchie um, in The Witch. But then immediately it's, it's not Finchie at all. No, it's, um, it, gets, it takes a dark turn, you know. It's, it's yeah, darker that, even than Finchie. That must have been a pretty cool career moment for you, right? Like... Um, I thought it was an unbelievable performance. And like you said, being like a, a really successful American film and being the lead, like, mm. is that one of the, the standouts? Yeah, it, it made, it's made a real change in my career. Um, it's definitely my favourite job and what I'd see as my best work I've ever done. And, yeah, me, meeting Robert Eggers, who's the guy who directed it, it was his first feature film. He's gone on to make The Lighthouse after that with Willem Dafoe. Mm. And he's, I've just finished working on a, a Viking film with him uh, that he's got Alexander Starsgard and Nicole Kidman, and he's doing a massive, huge budget movie in Belfast. Uh, That's so, cool. yeah, so working, um, yeah, getting to to meet him and work with him, it it completely changed the the course of my career. I, you know, I got on the back of the witch, my performance in the witch. I I got the call from Spielberg. You know, Spielberg's casting director ran me up and offered me a part without audition and stuff like that. So, yeah. you know, after <laughs> after being in the business for like. 20 odd years to then suddenly be having those sort of things happen she was really nice and I kind of think in a way maybe I appreciate it more than some kids do when it happens to them in their early 20s mm. you know after grafting for a few years to, to have these little moments I've, I've just done my second film with the Cohen brothers and stuff like that wow. you know it's like that's a, it's a big change from what I was doing kind of eight years ago so, uh, so yeah it's been fun one of the things we were gonna is on, we're on our list when me and Stevie were chatting about that first conversation we had was like, look, we can't go and just do like a Chris Finch love mm. <laughs> because because um, that's what we we kind of want to do. Mm. But uh, one of the things we because we do kind of have a, an angle of trying to think about mental health mm. and things people have learned and journeys people have been on. One of the things I wonder with actors is that when you get those moments where, oh, this is what I've always dreamed of, like I've always dreamed of being in these big films. And mm. you mentioned there that a lot, that the big, big success, obviously The Office is a huge success, mm. but as in like um, you being the main role in a big mm. film came quite later in life. Are you kind of grateful for that? Do you think, actually, I'm kind of glad it, it worked out this way. Whereas if you get that in your 20s, 
I think it's much more likely people become a bit of a twat or it goes to their heads. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's very true. I mean, although obviously as an actor, you always want to progress as quickly as you possibly can. Yeah. But I kind of knew when I started that I was, you know, I was a big, thuggy-looking 20, 20, early 20s, you know, when I started acting. So I was always playing henchmen and car thieves and things like that. I wasn't a pretty boy. So I wasn't going to get cast as a, as a lead when I was younger. I always kind of knew that if I could stay in the business, if I could work hard, learn my trade and play supporting parts for long enough, kind of my time would come because I'd grow into my voice and, and my ridiculous face. So <laughs> eventually that's happened and I'm, and it's... And yeah, I, I'm, I'm glad in a lot of ways I have. It meant that, you know, I was around a lot more for when my kids were growing up as well. Um, mm. And now they're, they're older, I, I, I feel less... It's, it's easier to go away, as it were. It was harder when they were really little. So, uh, so that, that's a good side of it. And yeah, I think that, yeah, you can go quite crazy when you're uh, offered all that stuff as young actors are when they get that kind of success. And uh, yeah, you can start to believe you take yourself too seriously. I mean, I've always maintained that I take my work really seriously, deadly seriously. You know, I put everything I possibly can into it, but I try not to take myself very seriously. And I think that's quite important when you're an actor. Um, is, you know, you've got to throw yourself into it, but you've got to be able to step out. Otherwise, it'll really get, get inside your head. You know, depending on the characters you're playing, I'm about to go out to, to Montreal to play to do a film when I've got to go into quarantine for like a week and a half in a hotel room before playing this insane uh, mass shooter in a film. It's like a crazy loner. And so, you know, I'm I'm going to be doing the whole uh, Joker and the, uh, you know, Heath Ledger in the, in the hotel room before oh, yeah. he played Joker stuff. <laughs> Good environment. Uh, no, with, with, without any choice, without any choice to do it. You know, I'm going to be stuck there for a week with all my weapons so I can rehearse with all the different guns. So... You know, that, that kind of, a week of that is kind of going to test anybody's mental health. So, yeah, I'm kind of glad I'm, a, I'm in a better place nowadays because that would be quite scary if I'd have had to have done that a few years ago. Flipping it, yeah. But it's, that sounds like a big job, mate. Um, who's who's the people? I'm much wondering, coming up for your career, if you've had, like, role models in the acting game, you know, whether it's the, you know, comedy game or the acting game that, that you've looked up to, and has that evolved over time? Yeah, I, th- I think so. I think as a kid, when you want to be an actor, you know, I, was, I used to watch you know, Charles Bronson and John Wayne and stuff with my dad and, and all those those kind of films, Clint Eastwood. And when I when I was a kid, that's the actor that I wanted to be. But since I've become an actor, I don't want to play those characters. I want to play much more diverse and interesting characters rather than mm-hmm. you know hard man leading men who shoot things up. Uh, so things have changed a bit, and I've I admire. Lots of kind of diverse actors, mainly what you'd probably call character actors. You know, like uh, Christopher Walken, I love, I love Pete Postlethwaite, um, Dennis Hopper, all, all sorts of like slightly off, off, off key people are the, the ones that I um, that I've always kind of admired. I've never seen uh, never seen much point in um, in trying to emulate the leading man, as it's never going to be the kind of thing that I'm I'm doing. You know? Yeah, and uh, this is probably. Um, you talk about a bit about royal family. Then, is it is there any? I thought I'd have to ask you this question. Is there any any sort of comedies that you'd find yourself quoting in your time um, growing uh, up? Or did, you, did you not throw yourself in that much? Well, my equivalent of of uh, of The Office is With Nail and I, the film. 
mm. me and Rags uh, are just yeah endlessly quoting that. It's a it's a film if your listeners don't know. It's about two out of work actors in London in 1969, uh, and it's just absolutely hilarious. Richard E. Grant is the lead in it, and Paul McGann. And, right, I'm uh, not seeing that. Yeah, I urge anybody to have a look. It's hilarious. It's, it's the most quotable film ever. Right, basically. brilliant. It's like a fil- film version of The Office. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, it's class, man. I haven't seen that in a few years, but it's really good, Steve. Yeah. Yeah. I'll definitely give it a go, mate. So uh, we're going to ask this question as well, mate. And um, I know, obviously, Chris just asked about getting those. We talk a bit about mentality, like the golden systems of, of getting places and, and how to use them and, and how best to, to figure them out. But also, like I probably launched it talking a bit about the dark side of sport, or the you know the the, mm. the tough tough um, side of of playing sport, um, which a lot of people don't see. So I wanted to ask you, Ralph, like as an actor, what what's been the challenges for you that um, the public might not see themselves? Well, I think the, the the first one is is what every actor has, whatever kind of level you're at. Well, that doesn't apply for supposed to people at the top is, is to keep employed. It's a very competitive business. Um, so to keep working and to keep food on the table, to pay your mortgage, all those those basic things, you'd start every year without any work, essentially. So you're constantly self-employed. And with any, with any kind of self-employed job, that brings a certain level of anxiety, especially if you've got mm. your family. Uh, so that that's hard, that basic... Uh, fear of of it running out because however much you think it's fine I've got a catalogue of work behind me people know me they're going to employ me again there's a voice inside you that goes well why it might not when you're unemployed you might not get cast again you might not and uh, uh, so that that niggle in the back of your back of your head is, is always there for for career reasons but mainly for practical reasons so that that's hard to keep yourself positive to uh, because you have to in my mind, when I approach auditions or castings or when I've, I'm going for a part or going for a job, I have to convince myself in my head that I'm the only person in the world who can play that part before I can really do it properly, the audition. So to constantly convince yourself that you're the only person who in the world can play that part, put that, that tape down or go and meet someone and do an audition or, or record it yourself on self-tapes, which is a lot of the way a lot of auditions are done now. So to get yourself into that thing, do it, and then not get it constantly um, mm. does does knock you does knock you and you, you do you do start to to question yourself so that's something that's one of the most demanding things of my business and then when you start working um, again it's it's like a, a lot of jobs where you you spend time away from home um, and that can be destructive in all sorts of ways, not just for loneliness, it's the way you fill your free time. You might have long periods when you're not filming and you might not have other casts in a hotel with you or something. So you're pretty much on your own in a foreign country trying to keep yourself sane. Mm. You know, some people have very healthy habits of cycling or you know, writing books. Unfortunately, I like to watch sport and drink beer <laughs> to relax. So, you know, if, you, if you've got days and days on end, nights and nights with pretty much nothing to do except, you know, check Twitter and watch the game in the bar. That's kind of what you'll do. So that, for me, is a, is a, a thing that I, I'm not saying I struggle with it, um, but it's something I have to keep an eye on when I'm away, that I'm not using booze as a as a coping strategy to deal with boredom. You know, that's that's definitely something I um, I have to look at. But, uh, yeah, other people have, have different 
different plans. But yeah, the being being away from home is is tough, and the yeah in, in, insecurity of, of work as well. Yeah, mate, I, I relate a lot to well, probably in a different way, but I guess if you're sort of trying to play that role and, and sort of be that person. You sort of mm. you've got you need a lot of commitment, don't you, and a lot of conviction. Yeah, yeah and then it's it's letting it's like a letdown, is it? Like you, you sort of well, well, it is because especially when you're working, I mean, you, you never quite get to the level of kind of commitment uh, when you're doing an audition. It's kind of not possible. But when you're actually on set and you're filming and you've gone through costume and makeup and you've rehearsed and you've got there and you've had the time to to really get into the character, you do kind of when acting's good, when it works, it's when you've really opened yourself up. You've kind of stripped yourself a bit bare and your, all your vulnerabilities are on show. That's what's kind of interesting to watch on film. Uh, however it is, I think, the, you know, the most interesting thing about Finch is not, not his jokes. It's what must have happened to him to make him that fucking insecure that he'd do that to everybody else. That's what's interesting about him, I think, rather than... The, the show that he puts on is what's behind. And so when you do that and you stick yourself open a bit, yeah, it does, you can feel really weird. Mm. You go, you finish it, you finish like 10, 10 hours of doing that and then you drop back at your hotel and you're sat in a hotel room trying to come down from it. Yeah. You know, and it's, yeah, it's how you come down, how you decompress from it, how you control those emotions that you're, that you're accessing and you're allowing yourself to access. You're fucking with your head, basically. Yeah. But you've got to be careful how you control that. Otherwise, yeah, you can send yourself a bit mad. Man, uh, yeah, that's yeah. that's true. Um, I've I've seen a lot about that. That like to to be in that role, to be in that that place, you're accessing those emotions, aren't you? It's like, and your body yeah. doesn't know the difference between your mind and and, yeah. and all this sort of stuff. So you're going through it, and then Absolutely. obviously the the loneliness on the other side of it. You you yeah. you needed that outlet, or you needed that sort of come down side to it as well. Yeah. Because I mean, I I, um, I had symptoms of anxiety and, and mild depression for for a few years. I'm I'm much recovered now, but because I have the the emotional and physical memory of of those feelings, I can I can kind of have a panic attack that I'm in control of. If you imagine performance wise, if you know the situation, not like panic, but you can bring on a lot of the physical symptoms of a panic attack and the adrenaline pumping through your system. And like you say, your body doesn't really, your brain, your body doesn't really know the difference. Mm. So you, you're just as messed up at the end of the day as you would be if you've, if you've had a real panic attack. Yeah. In, in some levels, all your, your you know, emotions and your hormones are all out. So yeah, it can be pretty messy. And like I say, the, the easiest thing to do is to go and have six pints. Yeah. But, but it's not always the healthiest thing to do. Mm. Short term, short term fix. Yeah, exactly. Is, is there any understanding like that's being offered in in the like acting game? I feel like as a society we're shifting out. We're definitely shifting mm. to you know we're having this conversation mm. and sports yeah. are um, shifting to um, a framework which is a lot more spoken about and mm. understood. Is there anything like in the acting world which which you can think of that's progressing? I think yeah. I think generally it's progressing. I think most people's attitudes are progressing and people in the acting and the theatre world tend to be more progressive people on uh, about that kind of thing anyway. So uh, I think there's been an understanding of mental illness. But as in anything, what matters is when the people who pay the bills actually take take notice of it. And I still don't, mm. I, you know, if I was in real trouble, I couldn't 
not get out of the hotel and go to work to film. I couldn't ring up and say, I'm in pieces, I can't come in, because it's all got to happen. You know, there'd be calls to agents, there'd be threats to sue, because every minute on a film set costs thousands of pounds. So they can't just shut down a film set because I can't go in for mental health reasons. So until, and that's that will be an absolute no. So, uh, and it's kind of an extreme example, but I, I still think that the, there'll be a lot of talk within my industry about understanding mental health, but when it actually came down to it, I'm not sure whether the people who pay the bills would actually subscribe to that. That might be a, a, a pessimistic theory, but I think that's the case. I think the people who work on the ground in my industry very much understand, but they're not the ones who sign the checks. Yeah, there's a lot of pressure in it, a lot of pressure, yeah. really. Mm. Mate, you seem um, you seem very self-aware of some of the things and traps that you've you've, you've used to kind of fall into, and yeah, yeah, I think we have we have men's groups as part of mentality, and mm. I don't want to make massive generalizations, but it is quite common for groups of men to be like your therapy is just to go and have a few pints with the lads in the pub or yeah. go and watch football and feel like that might deal with the problem. Because in the moment, when mm. you're there, you do feel fine. Mm. You know, you're, you're watching the game. I mean, we're all Leeds fans, so mm. for a long period, that maybe wasn't that <laughs> great therapy. So it's, much, it's much better now, but you know yeah. what I mean? Like it's, uh, I know exactly what you mean, yeah. Yeah. Are there so, things you've you've learned now then that you do differently? Do you think, okay, I'm not going to go out and have the, get on the beers every night with the cast and crew or whatever, I'm going to try Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Do some I, different I, things. Yeah, or... I, I uh, physically and mentally, I've always found yoga, uh, not always, but over since I started it about six or seven years ago, I find that really helps. And uh, I've always had a bit of a dodgy back. So when you're filming, you're on your feet in... Yeah, you can be on hard shoes on concrete, running on concrete or something like that. So often at the end of the day, my lower back's really agony. So I start to do now is I go and I do a bit of yoga and everything like that before I come and meet people later. Because yeah. if you're sitting, you, know, you jump straight out of the car from set, get into the bar, you know, it's a different evening. So, uh, yeah, I tend to try and make myself do something a bit more uh, healthy and constructive before I start that part of the evening. And yoga's usually the best way to yeah. do it. And leads have picked up as well, which which helps. God, that's helped. Yeah, that's yeah. really helped. Yeah, because when you it's been the saving grace in lockdown for me, like it's mm. just been you can't like my days now. My, my weeks looking forward to the Leicester game. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah, just yeah. Like the next. Yeah, I mean it's 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 heartbreaking not to be able to watch this team because I was working yeah. uh, the virtually all the way through his first season. I was working away out the country, so I've only seen Bielsa's. I only watched seen Bielsa ball twice in the whole time he's been here live so uh, yeah not to be able to to be in the crowd when we're playing that kind of football because it just must be so joyous you know yeah, or, or, it, or it will yeah. be it will be so joyous when it happens again so that uh, yeah, yeah the, the joy of being able to watch it so much and as as doing so well uh, it's tempered by the fact that it's like oh god what, what if he's actually gone by the time we can go and watch again. Can't let it happen. The, the club can't let it happen. No. It's just not fair. Yeah, <laughs> he but has what, to stay until we see him. Well, exactly. But that, that's my ultimate fear, is what the fuck? What if he actually goes before we're allowed to see him again? Don't that even... Uh... <laughs> I don't. I don't want to complain too much, but you might just yeah. sit down and be like, "Well, shit, six one. That's 
don't know. Six two. Six two. Yeah. I, I love it, man. It's death or glory. Yeah. It's yeah. Death or glory. It's like we got we play our way. Yeah. If you want to play the same way and you've got better players, you might give us a, a pounding. But yeah. I, pay, I pay to watch that over Burnley, Newcastle, those clubs any day. The there's, there's such an honesty about everything that he does. I think the way he plays the game, the way he approaches it, the way he is. I just like I have absolute trust in him. So. Yeah, it just takes the pressure off. I think I said it in an interview before on that "Take Me Out" thing, the the documentary, yeah, the interview on that. And I went, yeah. The great thing about it is that you you don't have pub pundits around anymore because you know it used to be because oh I think he should be going no 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 why aren't we playing this why aren't we doing that mm. you can just turn around and go shut off yeah. just be helpful. Yeah. Right? <laughs> 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 you really think you know more than him? Yeah. Yeah. You just, just absolute trust in what he's doing, and that's a that's an unusual feeling as a Leeds fan. Yeah. How often do you get quoted on Twitter? Leeds are doing well. If well, you had a pound for every time someone got tweeted <laughs> at you, yeah. Well, especially now we're up in the 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 Premier League. Yeah, every every game, every game. Well, we either win or lose. You know, it doesn't matter what what the result is. I get it for probably ten ten times every game, which is lovely. But you know, <laughs> I'll, tell you, I'll tell you a story. Did I tell you the story? I told it on a. Uh, a Leeds podcast uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the fact that Finchie wasn't always a Leeds fan. It was never mentioned what um, you know what football team he, he supported in the in the scripts. So you know you fill in your background as you do as an actor. You create all the missing bits to to try and make this a, a whole person. And that for me always includes something to do with football. Uh, and I decided he was such a wanker. <laughs> And this is like 2001 when they were doing well. Uh, I thought he should be a Man United fan. So I, in my head, he was a Man United fan. It's so fitting, yeah. Yeah, and I thought he was such a kind of manager. And then Ricky presented me with the, the scripts for the Christmas special and there was that line. And I was like, ah, do I tell him or not? And then I thought, but then people will think that I'm a Man United fan and no, I'm going to have to go with it. So yeah, I, le- I left it as Leeds because he knew I was a Leeds fan. He wrote, leads into it but uh, yeah, I, ne- I nearly pulled it out when no no Finchie supports Man United but right <laughs> I wouldn't have gotten the Leeds United mishmash do you know what it's a good job though isn't it can you imagine but it would have been quite a good gag though <laughs> can you imagine if you were a Man U fan yeah but, the, but this is it this is it I, I think actually in hindsight it would yeah. have been a better gag I would have dealt with some grief over the years yeah. but it would be a funnier gag for a Leeds fan to make an absolute wanker a Man United fan <laughs> yeah. I think it's a bit dodgy that me yeah. as a Leeds fan made Finchie a Leeds fan yeah you know, in a way. Speaking of like Leeds and telly, right? I heard you on the, I think it was on another pod where you mentioned the, uh, in your, in Game of Thrones, you got the lead salute in yeah. uh, as the, uh, yep. the, the, the Iron, the people from the Iron Island, is it? Or Yeah, the Ironborn, Ironborn salute. But you, you made them do the lead salute and I thought that was brilliant. Yeah, yeah. well, we, because uh, it was a joke with a mate of mine because I, you know, over the years I've got loads of things. Like I did a show called Playing the Field and I got, different lead shirts in every well my character wore different lead shirts in every series and all this so I've, I've been doing it for years and um, uh, some mates of mine who I got the game with went went well you know what's your next job and I went oh it's this medieval kind of uh, battle thing called Game of Thrones and they went well how are you going to get leads into that then and I went <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm not sure but I'll try and we were filming this scene and uh, it there's a load of us ironborn warriors who are all lined up and I'm kind of like the sergeant of them. And uh, the script says they do the ironborn salute. And it, this is the first time these characters had appeared. So the, the director turned around and goes, oh, what is the ironborn salute? And I went, oh, it's like this. 
And he goes, oh. And everybody kind of looked around and went, yeah, yeah. And so we did it like that. And there's like a line of ten of us all going, well, not, not with the voice, but, uh, but yeah, That's we got so it in. Well. So, uh, so when I, I came back from Belfast from filming that, I went, I got it in. And they're like, what? How do you? And I said, yeah, put the salute in. So that was a bit of a proud moment. That's class. That's, class. That's really good. Mate, mate, is there some moments on these, because you've done quite a bit, obviously, you know, you're going on to even more, and uh, you've done Game of Thrones, you've done Star Wars, you've done, obviously done The Office, um, Harry Potter. Marvel. Um, what, is there any moments where you've either, like, been in and around actors or, you know, any of these moments on set where you just thought, fucking wow. Yeah. When did I get here and, and, and how did I get in the middle of this? Loads of times, loads of times. Yeah, yeah. just constantly just stood there going, fuck, you know. There's a, <laughs> you see, have you seen Guardians of the Galaxy, the yes. Marvel film? There's you're, a, you're flying a spaceship in it, aren't you, I think? In, uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm, a ravage, I'm a Ravager pilot. And um, there's a scene where all the Guardians of the Galaxy walk down a corridor to Cherry Bomb. And it's a re- they all kind of assemble and walk down. And when we filmed that, uh, in the film, it cuts just as I arrive, <laughs> annoyingly. So I'm not in the thing. But when we were filming it, we all kind of like filter in behind the Guardians and all walk down this corridor. And I'm stood like next to Dave Batista, who plays Drax in it. And uh, just like there, and the cherry bomb blasting, and you're marching with these superheroes towards the camera. And yeah, that was one of those... Fucking hell, moments. It's great. (laughs) But most of those big jobs you get, I I was on Star Wars and uh, at one point my own droid pulled up next to me. I had like a black BB-8 that was nicknamed BB-8, like a little droid. And it was like, I was like, seven-year-old me. I was born in 1977. No, I was, no, I was, no, I was, I was seven in 1977 when the first Star Wars came out. So Ralph, mate, it seems like, You're trying to collect all the cult fan bases that are out there, right? You've got The Office, Star Wars, Harry Potter, Game of Thrones. Like, is there anything else on the list? Uh, I've done Sherlock as well, which is one of those. Sherlock. Sherlock. And Marvel. Of course, Marvel as well. Yeah, Marvel as well. Yeah, I think there's a thing online about all those where they they all connect. I think it's Mads Mikkelsen is the only one who's been in all four or five of them, of the main film ones. Wow. But uh, yeah, I think I'm the only person to be in all the ones you listed with uh, such a tiny amount of screen time amongst most of them as well. Like Star Wars, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy and Harry Potter, you know, I'm, I'm on the screen for, for, you know, a couple of minutes. But uh, so they're not the jobs I'm most proud of, but it was great, great fun to be involved in those kind of massive films. And I mean, even thinking The Office, right, that is probably one of the characters who has the most bang for his screen time out of any I've seen. Like, to become such a cult hero and one of the most quoted of all time. I mean, yeah. Again, it goes back to the writing and, and performing yeah. and stuff. But um, Yeah, the, it, it, it gets such a build-up. That's the, that's the beauty of it, is that it's built up so much by the time he arrives that so much of the work's already done. Because he's talked yeah. about a lot off camera, a lot of the gags, you know. People say, what's the difference between a dog and a fox? Well, I, said, I never said that line. You know, these are the things that were, <laughs> were done over the phone and stuff like that. So you, you, Finchie's a president, then I have screen time, as it were. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, they they, they, they tried to kind of hold him back because I was always a bit like, oh, and, and a few things got cut from the second series and I was a bit upset about that. And they decided that actually it's much better to just have very distilled amounts of him otherwise you kind of off balance the show a bit I think I've heard you mention the um the scene that was cut from the first series that they put back in in the in the credits and uh again from a writing perspective it's just a br- absolutely 
amazing way of how can we show a character in um mm. yeah and it's down to you that got back in right so it's, yeah, yeah. The, uh, two really done yeah two words and so that's why i wanted it because i just thought it completely encapsulates the character in two words which is great so yeah yeah one of my favorite scenes that one yeah it's one that, that gets quoted a lot in our group man uh, i have to say it comes yep. around ralph i thought actually right this bit uh you mentioned earlier about uh, what made Chris Finch that way? And I've heard you talk again about on another pod about um, him never being able, you know, never doing a spin off with Finchie because it wouldn't kind of work. Mm. Um, but I had a couple of little pitches for you. So just hear me out, right? Mm-hmm. The first go. one, right? The Silence of the Lamb. We lived the momentous day when Chris Finch threw a copper kettle over the Lamb pub in Chichester and left the pub in stunned silence. <laughs> a bit of a prequel into kind of like the, the background of the myth, the legend. So, that one's out there, right? You know, right. Stephen Merchant, Ricky Gervais, I'm happy to work with them. That's okay. all, you know, we can talk. Yeah. The next one is <laughs> The Finch. Chris Finch grows increasingly annoyed with the Christmas cheer engulfing the nation. <laughs> and with the help of his dog, does his best to ruin Christmas for everyone. So I uh, thought, a little Christmas angle there as well. This is a trilogy. So I got, I someone mocked that up this year as well. There's really? A, I got, I got oh the my. Picture, the poster picture of the Finch with me. Oh, that's, a, that's already in the ether then. Yeah, I thought already, I'd come yeah, up with yeah. a, with a yeah, goal. No, I think that's, that's already been done, but I do like Silence oh, right. of the Lamb. That's pretty cool. No, no, no one will have this one either, I reckon. This one's a bit darker. And seeing the witch, I thought, <laughs> yeah, you've got this range, right? This is Apocalypse Finch. Chris Finch is sent on a dangerous mission to Cambodia to rescue a renegade assistant manager, Gareth Keenan, who has won the trust of a local paper merchant. But like, I think... I think that's good, yeah. If Mackenzie's up for that as well, I think... uh, I can see myself smashing up the mirrors in a room to the doors, giving it all that. They're out there, mate. We can chat after the uh, the recording and... um, I'm thinking of tie tied around the head. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> that scene between you and Mackenzie is going to be the one as well when it he's there yeah. in the paper merchant. Yeah. <laughs> You'd have to get him in jungle, mate, wouldn't you? Yeah. Actually yeah. using the vines, not the tie. <laughs> well, actually, the Tropic Thunder has actually done that, haven't they? I just yeah, thought about yeah. that now. They've done it already, but... Yeah. I was uh, I, I, <laughs> fucking massive name dropper. I worked with Robert Downey Jr. Uh, on the Doolittle film he did a couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah. And it, it got him in very well. He's... Um, he was, a, he was a nice guy. I was talking and, uh, <laughs> and I said to him, I realised after I'd said it, what a weird thing it was to say. Because do you remember the little bits in Tropic Thunder where they were doing the trailers for the other work that they'd done? Yeah. yeah. And yeah, his yeah. was that uh, gay monk story with Tommy McGuire. The priest's one, yeah, yeah, that was class. Just, that just <laughs> kills me. I don't know why I find it one of the funniest things ever on film. And, uh, you know, this guy, star of this movie, is enormous one of the big movie stars in the world and uh with a vast amount of work to pick from and uh, i went to him i said god that little bit you did with the trailer is <laughs> and i said to him it was meant it was meant with absolute sincerity and he just kind of looked at me really confused and just walked away <laughs> I was like, of course that was a really twatty thing to do but i absolutely meant it but he, he obviously expected me to wax lyrical about all his other work but, very strange no I'm with you man that was gold that, like, yeah. it was called something like forbidden love or something wasn't it um, yeah, yeah. Yes. it's such a good moment that's a class film man fucking boys I've been fucking cutting out like mad apologies this fucking wifi is selling me down the river that's no good no good it is no good it is no good um, 
Ralph, I wanted to ask you, mate, if I don't cut out too much. What's the because um, Ricky Gervais gets a load of credit and 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 duly noted he should do. But what's what's Stephen Merchant like to work with on 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 the set of, of the Office in your past experience? Because he's sort of gone under the radar a little bit, hasn't he? Well, I mean, he does does a lot, a lot of great stuff. Mm. Uh, Steve, not quite to the uh, the level of maybe fame that, that Ricky's done, but yeah, he's done some incredible stuff, Steve. Uh, he lives in in LA, I think, at the moment. He does a lot of work out there. And now he was he's one of the nicest guys you've ever met. Very funny, very dry, and super, super intelligent. And a really good director, but not in a way that you'd expect. He he did this thing with me, uh, and you'll remember the scene. It was, um, what do you call it, comic relief, where I come oh into Dawn. Yeah. <laughs> all the squeal, piggy squeal stuff, that whole scene. So we do it, and obviously it's a really extreme scene, even even by the standards of that character. So I kind of come around, boy, boy. So give it, give it a few thrusts of the of the back you know, scuttling action. So I'm like, yeah, and he's like, no, nah, it's not long enough. So I was like, okay. so I yeah, did it and extended it a little bit. And he's going, no, it needs to be longer. I'm going, Steve, I'm feeling properly uncomfortable by the end of it. It's ridiculous. I'm just overselling the gag. And he's going, no, I'm not. Keep it going. So I do it. And he goes, no, it's not long enough. And it keeps going up. And I'm like, Steve, this is going against every instinct I've got. I feel just ridiculous. And he goes, keep going until I tell you to stop. So I did. And I'm pulling all these fucking ridiculous faces and squealing like a pig. Uh, and at the end of it, it just went, that's just fucking stupid. And he went, it's brilliant. I was like, it's fucking stupid. And I said, I said, you won't use it. And uh, yeah, it's like, he's absolutely right. It's one of the funniest things I do in the whole series because it's so uncomfortable. And the, the the way he understood the way the that moment impacted everybody else in the room is what, I don't know, makes it such a, a good piece of direction. But yeah. He's, he's spotted that. And yeah, it's the most probably the most uncomfortable I've ever felt in front of camera. But it's Mate, we got a tweet about that that specific scene to ask you. Stevie put a tweet out earlier, and the first thing that came back was, "How did you keep a straight face during the comic relief scene?" So I'm guessing that is the scene. But yeah, it sounds pissed. like I was pissed off. I was yeah. like, what "The fuck, seriously? Okay, I'll just pull some silly faces and squeal. Will that do you?" It was a bit like that. I was like a bit stroppy. So it's fucking rubbish. So I go, <laughs> and he's, he's absolutely right and he was spot on because my version of it wasn't half as quick I'd just done the shag and then I was straight on to the next gag and, and all of this but his yeah. his way of telling the story was much better <laughs> he wanted to go in deep on the uh, the shagging bit didn't he he wanted to go in deep and it is when you're watching it it is a bit like you're laughing and yeah. then he, he sort of you keep laughing and then you're going fucking hell it's still, yeah, it's still, it's still going on yeah. and you're like yeah. you're like looking at whoever you're watching with like yeah it's fucking this bit, this is a bit of fucking this is a bit weird it's going for here it's going for here um, but yeah it's fucking it's class mate it's class What what's like because I, I watch it and I say like I, I'm like flipping watching it thinking this looks like the best job ever so but for corpsing and stuff like they're my favourite things to watch yeah. the, the outtakes yeah. Um, what was the attitude there? Because obviously there's a lot lower budget and stuff like that. It's first first time Ricky Gervais has done anything. Yeah. What was the vibe? What was the vibe in that? Taking out the vibe on that? Well, you're right. It was very it was different um, to to a normal set. I was one of the actors who worked quite a lot before The Office because I'd been around for like eight or ten years before we did that. Whereas a lot of the cast, it was one of their first jobs. So I'd worked on, you know, 
big American movies and all of this kind of stuff and seeing how seriously and everything it's, it's all taken. So then going on to uh, the office set, which was a very different vibe, which is kind of the, the mood was set by Ricky and he's pissing about and his jokes and it was great fun to be there and that vibe. But it, it, you still have to control the corpsing. You know, otherwise it's, you're wasting everybody else's time if you if you're mm. corpse. You know, everybody else is trying not to as well. So it's 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 a it's a weird situation to be in as an actor because it's great fun to be in a situation where people are corpse and naturally laughter laughter is funny, but it's terrifying to be trying to do your job and control a corpse in when it's as hard as it is to do on something like The Office. So yeah, there were times when it was just you know you'd be tensing your your abs so hard that you know you just almost feel like cramps at the end of a take. Yeah. yeah. Who's some of the best actors you've worked with then across your time? Big question. Um, yeah. Uh, fucking hell. Um, Kate Dickey is the actress or the actor who plays uh, my wife in The Witch. She mm. was, she's amazing. And Phenomenal, she kinda, yeah. She kind of taught me so, in fact, both of these actors, which I've learned a lot from in the last few years, not that I thought I'd learned everything, but you seem, you know, when you've been doing a job for 20 years, you think you're pretty competent at it. Uh, mm. And then working with Kate, she taught me a whole new level of kind of commitment and intensity to the job, which has helped me do more intense, bigger parts uh, since then. So she, she'll always be one of my first answers. And uh, the other one is Jared Harris, who's the lead mm. in Chernobyl. Amazing, again, yeah. And for a similar reason, of you know, I've watched many actors, you know, great actors over the years. And what set Jared apart was the first scene I did with him. We're sat there, and he's got a pad, and we're trying to work out ways of clearing the radioactive material off the roof of Chernobyl. There's me, him, and Stellan Starsgard, and he's putting in suggestions. We're having this discussion, and every time he said the line, each of his lines whether it was in rehearsal, whether the camera was on him or whether he was just feeding lines to another person on camera, you genuinely believed that that was the first time that thought had come into that character's head. Every time it came out, it was slightly different, but not not in a mannered way. It just, it, these thoughts, these lines were coming to him in such a, a fresh, real way. It was just mesmerising to watch. Um and so yeah, he's yeah him him and Kate Dickey, I would say with it. And, and would that be for like every take? So that it'd yeah. Bit cool that yeah, every take yeah yeah. It's just like the, the the thing because quite often when you're filming a scene, you you rehearse it, uh, you rehearse the scene and work out what shots are going to be taken, mm. and they'll dress it, light it. Then you'll first shoot a master shot, which is kind of a pretty much the whole scene, including most mm. people who talk in it. And then you'll go into what's called the coverage of it. So you might see a, a shot of two people in the scene and then you're going to do close-ups of it. So you'll kind of shrink it down. So eventually the, the last shot is probably the the lead actor in the scene in a close-up. So the camera's kind of just on his head and shoulders. And yet, so you think about it, there's so many different takes, so many different times you run that scene. And normally you get to a point where you fix the performance and the rest, all the other shots are kind of replicating that. Whereas it wasn't like that with Jared. Every take was a completely new one, completely new mm. way. And he didn't, didn't do it in any way that, that put you off, or, or, you know, because it's horrible when actors deliver you a line in a different way to they have been doing in the past. It, mm. it yeah. affects you a lot. So it wasn't like he was doing that. It was just like these these thoughts were coming fresh. And it was, uh, 
it sounds like a simple thing and what what obviously acting should be, but it just in the the way you have to film it, it, it takes so much dedication and real art to do that every time. Because it, it goes back to what you were saying at start as well with obviously, you know, you, you had the Chris Finch character that came so strongly into the world and obviously David Brent did. And it's like, there's obviously a little bit of you in that, um, in, in anything you're playing. You've got to sort of, from what I've from what I've seen, um, from what I'm sort of speaking with people, it's it's sort of like yourself, but you're taking on an extra, um, I don't know, an extra added sort of like cover on top of it. So it's like, it's quite it's quite complex in it. It's not it's yeah. not so straightforward. Rather than, well, I, I think uh, the way I kind of look at it is that you've got like an instrument to play, mm. and it's always the same instrument essentially, but you've just got different ways of playing it. You've got the same face, the same shape, the same body. You can change it. To, to minimal ways but you then have to internally find that character and find how that how you're your body oh god that sounds so pretentious but you know how you're going to move how you're going to do you have or what your, your basic materials are always going to be the same so there's always going to be a base baseline that is is something of you and then you you bring the character to it you, yeah, and and how would you look to connect with a role, mate? Like, how's how's that like developed over time? Like, is it is a process that you go through specifically, or? Yeah, there's there's lots of different things you do. I mean, you you, you look at the source material that you've got, which mm. is usually the script. It can also be you can have you can be playing real people or something like Chernobyl. There's a lot of research you can do around it that way. <coughs> um, say the witch. There's a lot of research you could do about the you know, history and Puritan times and what you can know about mm. it. Uh, uh, you start with your source material and then just try and find a way a way into the character's head to try and find out what, what makes them tick what makes them make the decisions what makes them say that what makes them treat people like that mm-hmm. and sometimes that can be going back into into what's happened to them in their life to bring them to this point or it might just simply be creating a world that they're living in in the moment in your head but unless you've got something real to set them in, it's just words. You know, it's mm. not you're just repeating someone's words off a line and standing on the right mark. It's, That's true, it's, surely, yeah. got, it's surely got to be something more than that. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Just jumping uh, back to Chernobyl, mate. Did, did you? Because that was one of the best TV. I think it was 2019, was it? But that was the one of the shows of the year, without a doubt. Like it was just unbelievably good. Did you? A bit like The Office, in a sense, like it kind of just came out of nowhere. Like, was that one of the shows, when you're on it, did you realise how good this was going to be? Yeah. Did you think this is going to be top notch because of the actors on board and like when you read the script and stuff? Or did you think, yeah. you know, this would be big, but it's not going to be, it's not going to, you know, be top five on all the lists across the world? It was one of those ones that I, it was so good on the scripts. When I read the scripts, the scripts were so good. Uh, I was only in one episode and a scene in another episode out of the five. And I read all five episodes twice. You never do that. Wow. As, as an actor, you, yeah, you, can, you would read the whole thing once, skim read the whole thing. You must try on your own stuff. Yeah. But that was just such great scripts that I read them for entertainment twice. And so you knew it was great. And then you put Standard Stars Guard on it and the best costume and makeup designers and mm. the amount of money that HBO and Sky put into it. Uh, you just knew that it was it was the real deal. And because I knew I'd read the scripts and they were so good, I thought, yeah, it was one of the 
one of the only ones I've ever been really confident that would be a success. Yeah. That's really cool, it. man. Yeah. That's a great yeah. one to have on your CV, mate. It's absolutely astounding that. Like, and yeah, you mentioned you've got a few things still to come out. Um, is there anything coming out that you're like, I can't wait for this to drop? This is going to be really big, really uh, good. Or... Well, yeah, I've got a few this year that I'm kind of excited about. Um, the first one is one that you probably wouldn't expect me to be excited about. It's a musical about um, a boy in Sheffield who, uh, a 16-year-old boy in Sheffield who wants to grow up to be a drag queen. It's called Everybody's Talking About Jamie. It's a West End musical. They made a film version of it. Uh, And I think the uh, Richard E. Grant plays the kind of mentor drag queen and Max Harwood is this young kind of debutant actor uh, who's absolutely amazing. I think he's going to blow people away as as the lead character. And I get to, I play his father in it, who's, you know, unsurprisingly not particularly on board with the whole drag queen thing. So that I'm looking forward to that coming out because I think it's going to be great and I think it's a real feel-good film that people kind of need at the mm-hmm. moment. So I think that'll come out probably first. It was going to come out at the end of February, but I think they've moved it back again. It's, it's been released by Disney, but that should be out kind of springtime at some point. And I'm looking forward to people watching a happy film for that one and then i've got uh the one that i'm probably most excited about is a film called the green knight uh which is a retelling of sir gawain and the green knight the medieval kind of poem uh and i play the green knight in it dead fatel plays sir gawain and it's a 24 film kind of folk horror uh, and that'll be out i think it's the 30th of july that comes out I'm really looking forward to that. And there's another one called Gunpowder Milkshake, which is a big shoot-em-up film about a secret society of female assassins. Wow. Who are all trying to... Mate, what a great... <laughs> such a great catalogue. And like adding to it with so many cool ones, like they all sound class in their own right. Mm. And then 2022, Silence of the Lamb as well, we've got... Um, yeah, on, well, on I'll probably 23, but after post-production and stuff. So. Okay, yeah. <laughs> we'll have to do a big media campaign. Yeah, you should we start uh, a Chichester or The thing is, you'd probably get it. I'd have to do it, wouldn't I? Don't start a graph. That's dangerous, isn't it? That's the, the we'll do a short. We'll do a short. It'll be a 15 minute short. Have a laugh. Yeah, class. Um, just wanna just just wanna ask Ralph. Like, we probably should have asked it at the start, mate. But I'm interested in 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 you know how, how people get to where they are, and mate, especially like for, for your career. And you know, as you mentioned, you sort of this this big blow. You this sort of like um, I imagine coming up through school. Unless you were really interested in drama through school, it probably won't. Uh, a go-to option I don't know like um, yeah. How, how did drama present itself to you when you were growing up uh, not really there wasn't really any about there wasn't any drama at school they didn't do any drama O level as it was when I was around or A level or anything mm. uh, and there was there was always a, a production each kind of year uh, of some kind a play would be put on so I'd always try and get involved in that because I always liked it um, from when I was kind of like eight or nine I think was the first kind of play I did at mm. school and you know, not not nativity as such but all that and I, I always liked it but so the schools I went to and uh, just you know where where you grow up it's 
sport and stuff like that are much mm. more suitable stuff for a young lad in in most people's minds. So the drama was never really never really encouraged or I didn't really have much access to it. So I always kind of secretly loved it and then went on um went to university and changed my course to do theatre studies when I went there. So I did a, a bit of, of study there and yeah, really kind of fell in love with it, but still didn't think that it would be possible to make a living out of it, mm. to make a job out of it. Um, it didn't really seem like something that I could do. So I came back to York, which is where I was living at the time, and I was I taught at the Sixth Form College in York. I was a teacher for a, a little bit. And then they do this thing called the York Mystery Plays every four years, um, mm. and it's at the Theatre Royal. <clears throat> it's the stories of the Bible. And they've been doing them since the Middle Ages. And they did it in, what was it, 1992. And the guy who was directing it, I met him in a pub, as you do. Uh, and uh, I'd known him from Lancaster, where I was at college. And I used to work behind the bar in the theatre. And I used to serve him. And he was the guy who was directing this, these mystery plays in York. And he said to me, you studied theatre, didn't you? And I said, yeah. He said, what are you doing now? I said, oh, I'm teaching. He said, do you want to come do this? Have you got time? I said, yeah, yeah, I'd love to. So I went yeah. and got a couple of parts in the York Mystery Plays where um, it's all the people of York, uh, the, the cast, and they have one professional actor who plays Jesus, and that was Robson Green in 92 oh. when I did it. Mm-hmm. And we just hit it off. We uh, you know, went for a drink together, had a laugh, and he asked me if I wanted to come into his star dressing room with him because he was lonely all on his own. There was like 100 people in this big barn, and then he was in his own dressing room. Yeah. So me and this other lad called Gray, uh, we went and joined him in the dressing room, which was really nice. And in talking to him, he, was, he said to me, you're not that bothered about teaching, are you? Which I wasn't really. I was only, I was only young. And mm. I wasn't that bothered. And he said, do you not want to act? And I said, well, I'd like to. How, how would I do that? And he said, there's plenty of work for someone like you out there. He said, I think you can do it. And he sent me on to watch TV. And he said, just watch TV tonight and look at how many parts you could play. Mm. So I did, and I watched it. And you watched through the soap operas, and you watched through the nine o'clock drama, and there's like loads of thieves, drug dealers, yeah. You know, um, young lads, and I thought, yeah, I could play that, I could play that. I could play. So um, Robson actually lent me a few quid, uh, 400 quid, in fact, to oh. get some photos taken. And uh, I joined up with a cooperative agency in Leeds uh, at first. And then got a, I was really lucky. I got some jobs very quickly and got an agent in London within a couple of months. And, wow. And within, wow. Then, within, then within six months, and this is ridiculously lucky, within six months, uh, uh, I got this script, so I got a chance to look at this script. It was like, it's called First Night. It was Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. And big Hollywood film. And I got the chance to audition for one of the minor knights that didn't speak. And I flicked through the script, and the, the bad guy's henchman was called Ralph. So I thought, oh, I'll have a look at that. And when he's introduced, it goes, a hawk-faced man called Ralph. And I thought, well, my beak, <laughs> that'll do. So I, I asked if I could audition for that, and I got the part, which was like sixth on the cast list of a $70 million Hollywood movie. And it was like six months after I'd left TV. <laughs> so wow. that, got, that got me another couple of you know steps up the ladder. Uh, so I was really lucky to miss out a lot of the really scraping and struggling stage mm. of starting out acting. Um, I got in at a certain level, but then obviously the myth of, of acting is that you get a big break when the reality of it is you get lots 
You get lots of mini breaks that move you on a little bit. There's not one thing that kind of opens you up. Well, um, Robson, so how's, how's, um, have you, have you, you sort of developed that relationship with Robson Green then from, from the start back then? No, no, I mean, I, I haven't seen him for years, to be honest. He just gave me, he did me a lovely favour at the start. Brilliant, isn't it? And, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, the thing about this business is that you do have certain friends that you, that you go through the business with, but it, it's more about you kind of find you end up forming these intense relationships for a very short time mm. and then having friends who you'll be really happy to have a chat with once a year for the for next yeah. year or whatever mm. but the the experience of you know going to a foreign country and all having to work really intensely 14 hour days and all this kind of stuff six days a week it it, it creates these very close bonds but it also but it's different from kind of normal friendships it doesn't really matter if you don't speak because everybody's off and away mm. and doing stuff so uh yeah, you feel like you have a lot of friends, but you don't speak to them very often in this business. Yeah, man. I, I, I bet you, like, from the from the life that you've lived and all the flipping different jobs you've got, and you've 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 been in different places, you must have made some incredible connections and flipping mm. learned so much, mate, along the way. Yeah, it's it's been it's been great. It's having a, having a chance to travel as well, and mm. yeah, there's some incredibly interesting people working the in the film industry and and around it. So yeah, I feel really privileged to have, have been able to learn like that. Yeah, for sure. Do you ever have a, you, you mentioned you get loads of mini breaks, but would, do you ever, can you look back on your journey and pinpoint certain moments where you were like, fucking hell, I think I'm going to be a professional actor. Like this is, you know, you've got that thing in the night and then at some point you're like, okay, I'm just earning solely from acting. Like mm-hmm. is, there a, is there a couple of moments for a particular night or like when one thing where you're like, I think this is it. I think mm-hmm. this is on. Yeah, I think I I got so lucky in the first couple of years that it was almost almost the other way. It was like, whoa, whoa what can hell? And it was it was so <laughs> it was so, so much easier than I'd anticipated it to be. I'd kind of left teaching, I'd given up my teaching job and gone, right, okay, I'll give it a go. If I can get professionally employed in a year, I'll give it a go. Mm. Uh and I was thinking of, you know, local repertory theatre or something like that. Not and Hollywood I, film, yeah. I, I didn't expect to go <laughs> to, to, to that. So so that kind of was a bit weird for the first couple of years. It was a bit like being a competition winner. You know, hey, we're gonna <laughs> And then, then obviously it settles down and uh I do I don't I don't so much remember uh, you know great moments of getting jobs and being really happy about that. But I don't remember a moment of thinking I've arrived or I've made it or this is it. It's more I do really distinctly remember a moment of nearly quitting. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Yeah, because I I was a bit out I've been out of work or I'd and I got close to jobs that I, when you get knocked back for stupid reasons or reasons that, yeah, that, that I'd been knocked just a few times on the trot. And there was a point, long time ago now, probably before the office, that, well, it was before the office, that I thought, yeah, I'm actually thinking of quitting. But, uh, yeah, I haven't thought about that for a long time. I love my yeah. job, so, yeah. Are you saying then the subtext there that, that Finchie saved you in a way or, like... No, because I think I think I'd got over it. It was more no, no, you can't have that. It was more. Yeah. I, I think it was, I think I think it was actually the the show playing the field. Uh, I, I I was just doing lots of little bitty bits, and it didn't really add up to anything. And I was getting a bit frustrated about just playing car thieves and and drug dealers for one scene in a in a drama. So I think what actually saved me was playing the field. 
because that was a, a running series and I was a regular character. I was part of a family and that, and that that kind of really got me going. Yeah. Thank cool. you. So playing the field and Finchy, and that's like the turning the turning yes. point. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Desperately. Chris desperately wants to hear that, don't you, mate? Uh, look, Chris Finch is he'll live in all our hearts for a long time, won't you? So we're we're no. biased, but um Yeah. 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 As 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 the as the beloved knobhead, he'll live on, won't he? Mm. Oh, I don't think he's that beloved. <laughs> No, yeah, he's, he, he's almost got no redeeming factors apart from being a Leeds fan, and that's just for us, really, isn't it? But, yeah. fact, <laughs> and that was a mistake, anyway. I know, that was a mistake. Yeah. So. <laughs> oh, fucking hell. Yeah. Class, class. It's with, oh, let's just, just quickly, right? I jumped to Twitter because you did put a tweet out asking for questions. And one of them was, was definitely about the um, comic relief. I'll just jump in now and see if we've got any more. First question here. When he is working in Hollywood, does he ever mention his love for Leeds United to them? What is their reaction when he does? Also, is he a Rhinos fan? Uh, I am a Rhinos fan. Not as much as I'm a football fan. Um, but yes, Rhinos are definitely my league team. Um, I do constantly bang on about football, quite embarrassingly, really. Especially uh, now. <laughs> yeah, uh, at, at the moment. But I always have, really. Uh, I always feel it's my kind of duty to... Uh, convert random Americans and Canadians to be Leeds fans even if they don't really know why so if anybody <laughs> asks you who your English team is what do you say and they go Leeds United there's lots of lots of people that will answer that because yeah, I've badgered them but um, yeah they're really not interested most of the time good man they're spreading the uh, yeah spreading the the Leeds Unitedness around the globe um, one more question is what's the biggest protector of his mental health during the pandemic um, so yeah any things that you found any tips you've picked up over the past year that, that might have helped I mean I, I found bizarrely the initial uh, lockdown and everything helped me massively uh, mental health wise because to be able to take a break and everybody take a break because part of the mm. The thing about acting as a person with lots of jobs is the worry of, of everybody else getting on. You know, it's like some kind of terrible ra- race. If you're not mm. working hard enough, then you're falling behind. This whole idea of uh, of that that kind of conveyor belt thing of, of life. Um, and suddenly when that had to stop and everybody had to stop, and there was nobody acting, there was nobody working, nobody was doing a better film than you, nobody was being more successful. Mm. Suddenly that cut off helped me just make a, a stop point um, and readdress things, which was great. Just having a, a complete stop helped me a lot. Um, and I think what I've learned in lockdown is uh, it's about being present. It's about trying to find a, a, a moment to send to yourself because there is nothing going on. So there's no point in, in fuzzing and letting your mind become buzzy and fuzzed by everything that's going on. I've, I've got three dogs, so I walk my dogs a lot and... Yeah, just the times to just stand there in the middle of a forest and take a deep breath and just calm and just take a moment. Um, that's that's what I've learned. Where, wherever you are, if you're not in a forest with the dogs, if you're in your kitchen and the kids are screaming, just yeah, just a moment yeah. to centre yourself and take a breath mm. and just stop. I think yeah. that's, that's what's helped me. Mate, that's so beautifully put, man. That was, uh, it was almost like one of those meditation apps or something. That was lovely, <laughs> man. That was class. Um, yeah. It's, that's big, though, and it? it is big. I think I, I yeah. relate massively to that. Like, yeah, I think we, 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 we're so, like, we're so used to actually being 
in the future or thinking about something else or thinking about something that's happened two years ago or two weeks ago, mm. flipping spread ourselves so thin. I think the lockdown, yeah, for sure, um, it gave us that moment to just go, all right, well, it's just here. It's just here at the minute, do you know? And, and there's no excuse to to look at um, what anyone else is doing or what else happened in the future. Um, so that's big. That's massive. Also, I guess it's a good chance to bed in some habits. Like if you mentioned yoga and stuff, I can imagine yeah. you might have had much more time to, yeah, to, to do things like that and get exactly. into good habits and routines. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and it's again, it's it's learning to fill time healthily, you know, as well, but, you know, in non-destructive ways. And I think uh, I think everything shutting has, has helped that as well. Yeah. And there's one more question on Twitter. Um, I think it's almost like the classic question actors get asked. Um, I used to find learning lines in drama pieces to be a nightmare. How did you cope with the pressure? So, um, yeah, line learning. Um, for me, just a lot about uh, repetition. It's simple as that, just reading it over and over again and, and becoming familiar with it, not just because I can't just sit down and learn it for an hour. I learn it and I'll come to it and I'll come back to it. What I tend to do is I'll print off um, multiple copies of whether it's a big monologue or, or a scene and I'll kind of have it on the, the kitchen worktop. So if I'm waiting for a call or I'm, I'm cooking, I can check it then. I'll have one next to my bed. So when I go to bed, I can just check over it and things like that it's just getting it absorbed into you and trying not to try not to rush it in a way because I think if you try to learn it too hard then it doesn't really go in as well with me if I just kind of let it just become familiar with it it just yeah. goes in but I've been doing it for 20 odd years so I don't know what the actual process is and your, your brain trains to do what you do naturally yeah. so I'm sure I'm better at learning lines than I would be if I wasn't an actor love it well, mate, it's been flipping a mega to have you on, Ralph. It's been brilliant, mate. That's it's been, uh, it's been, you know, me and Chris have ticked off one of those. Yeah, definitely, man. <laughs> Trying to keep it cool. Life goals, life ambitions, mate. It's been, it's been, it's been really good to have you on, mate. So thank you for spending time with us. One of the cleverest folks we know, Steve. Right? Yeah, yeah, sure. One hundred forty-two. All right. Cheers, then. Class. Yeah. Cheers, Ralph, mate. It was a cool. pleasure, mate. Really, really good. <laughs>